While working on this presentation, I changed the title. title. I called it now the first angel's message and the end of the 2300 days. And this period that we cover is from 1831 to 1844. And it is really amazing what God did during that period as a demonstration of the first angel's message. Uh, we can say a lot about how it originated, and, uh, but I will to concentrate myself on William Miller's view on the 2300 years. There are many people who focused on the end of that period, but uh, depending on the little horn and the sanctuary, they all came to different conclusions. And we would have never come to where we are now, was it not for the insight that the Lord gave to William Miller. In fact, uh, the chapter on William Miller in the book Early Writings, which is a part of these uh, spiritual experiences, the early Christian experiences. Among us, you find that a fantastic story how God moved upon the mind of a farmer who had not believed in the Bible and communicated with him. Time and time again, angels visited that individual leading his mind to explore prophecies that had been darkness to God's people forever. But I guess God wanted to have a person that when the person sees the light, he follows the light no matter what. And that is what God looks for today. And you will see here that 1844 split Christianity and brought about the remnant. Because all the other people, unless they joined Adventism, they never saw the light. Even some of our pioneers, like Miller, Josiah Litch, Joshua Himes, and many others were not willing to follow the light. But after 1844 came, the light of the sanctuary, the light of the Sabbath. And so here, keep in mind, William Miller's role in salvation history. is a quote from early writings. God called him, Miller, to leave his farm, as he called Elisha, to leave his oxen and fields of his labor to follow Elijah. Miller's role in salvation history. With trembling, Miller began to unfold to the people the mysteries of the kingdom of God 
carrying his hearers down through the prophecies to the second advent of Christ. Early writings, page 229. And you know, just being exposed to the scriptures changes individuals. Because William Miller noticed that in the war of 1812, <coughs> many of his colleagues and friends were killed, but he not. Grenades exploded around him and it didn't hurt him. And he was puzzled about it as a deist. Why not me? Then he retired. And then his mother, a faithful Baptist, encouraged him to come to church. He says, you know, why should I go to church? We don't have a pastor. And those who read the sermons cannot even speak English. So his mother said cleverly, William, you're such a literary figure. Why don't you read it? And so he started to read it. Sunday after Sunday. And the result is one day he reflected and spoke about the sermon about Isaiah 53. And during that sermon, the Holy Spirit influenced him so much that he broke down. And he started to study the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And every time when he didn't understand it, he went back and he didn't go further until he knew. And therefore he came at that time on those prophecies. And he discovered a light that we can still cherish. Although his names in the academic literature never is being mentioned. In fact, some of the papers that I had to present at the TOSC, the Theology of Ordination thing, I referred to William Miller's hermeneutic. And my colleague said, no, 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 leave him out. Leave him out. We are based on something better than William Miller. Interesting. Anyway, during this controversy, the Adventist preachers used the Bible and the Bible only as the watchword. You find this in Great Controversy, page 63. The Bible and the Bible only. And this morning I, I, I told you, I became a firm believer that we can solve our present controversies by the Bible and the Bible only. And if you don't believe it, survey the literature and you see that presently there are two different trends opposite each other on biblical interpretation. Miller's rule again in salvation history. As John the Baptist heralded, the first advent of Jesus and prepared the way for his coming, so William Miller and those who joined him proclaimed the second advent of the Son of God, early writings 2.30 and 2.31. And so here in this character sketch, we see that William Miller represented the Elijah message of the last days 
and the John the Baptist message to prepare the Lord's coming. So Elijah brings people to repentance. Why should you stand on two opinions? Decide for the Lord. John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus' coming. Conclusion, Miller was called to lead the movement that prepares the world for Christ's second advent. There's no doubt about it in my mind. And I hope there is no doubt in your mind that we are not just another church, that we are God's movement called in the fullness of time to prepare the world. And 99.7% of the world has no idea what Seventh-day Adventists are doing. Isn't it a shame for us? How are we going to accomplish this? And God reaches your heart. And you have the compassion of Jesus to see the multitudes perishing around you. You go to London, Berlin, Rome, Los Angeles, Detroit. How many today are preparing for Jesus' coming? They're all lost presently, unless you and I listen to the marching orders of Jesus Christ. And so here is William Miller's religious experience. An experience with Jesus and his word. Quote, when brought almost to despair, William Miller said, God by his Holy Spirit opened my eyes and I saw Jesus as a friend and my only help in the word of God as the perfect rule of duty. Midnight Cry Journal, November 17, 1842, page 1. And so here is a statement by the Spirit of Prophecy endorsing William Miller's rules of Bible interpretation. And if you don't follow those rules, perhaps you are in the darkness that has come on Christianity. <clears throat> Quote, those who are engaged in proclaiming the third angel's message are searching the scriptures upon the same plan that Father Miller adopted. Ellen White, Review and Herald, November 25, 1884. And so we have to be very, very familiar with this kind of approaches. Now, presently, we have a more sophisticated document. You know, what is that document called? It was voted in 1989. Methods of Bible study. William Miller's rules of interpretation. I have it here in uh, my book on foundations of Adventism. And this is 300 pages and we look at William Miller's rules and we see that it's only two pages. 13 rules. The document voted by the General Conference is six pages, very dense material. 
And today in our church, both parties who are diametrically opposed claim the General Conference voted the rules of biblical interpretation as being the faithful mandate of their interpretation. Interesting that you come to two complete contrary interpretations based on the same document. Maybe we need to go a little bit simpler and see if we follow also William Miller's interpretation that has been endorsed by Ellen White. That was the pioneer mentality. Of course, as a scholar, I have to be more sophisticated. But this is William Miller's view. Here his view on Daniel 8. Who is the little horn? And it was only if you follow this interpretation and not many of the other interpretations, all the Bible commentaries, that you come to our position. <clears throat> Who is the little horn? Rome, pagan and papal. Then, what is the sanctuary? William Miller had six explanations, but the one he chose was that the sanctuary is the church and or the earth. And when those are being cleansed, when will it be? When will it be? The cleansing of the earth and of the church in 1843. When does this judgment take place? At the end of the 2300 years, about 1843. William Miller, we didn't want to be pressed into a corner. He needed to have some room. He says, about that time, according to the best reckoning at that time. And so the result, according to the King James margin, it was God was at the same time justified. There was the process of justification that took place at the end of the 2300 years. Now, how did he calculate the 2300 years? And Dr. Davidson gave an ex excellent explanation, more scholarly, more up to date. But how did the angels work on William Miller's mind? And what did William Miller arrive at? Daniel 9 is the key to understanding the Daniel 8. Now, this insight was already uh, discovered by Johann Petri, a German pastor, in the, 18, in the 1700s, in the middle of the 1700s. That was the first time that anyone connected the solution to the 2300 days to Daniel 9. So that Daniel 9 was the key to unlock when did the 2300 years begin. The 70 weeks are the key to date the 2300 days. Both periods have the same beginning. 20, 20, uh, chapter, 20, uh, uh, chapter 9, verse 24 says, you know, 70 weeks are determined. And the Hebrew, you know, it says, shatak, cut off, cut off from what? From a longer period. And so that was what the Millerites already had. The dating of the 70 weeks, 
The 70 weeks are 490 years. Based on the calculation, the year day principle that was already in swing in the time of the Reformation. Every Protestant reformer used this principle. When did the 490 years begin? Daniel 9.25 mentioned that it began with the decree to build and restore Jerusalem. It was Artaxerxes' decree issued in his 70th year. This was the spring of 457. That was the best information that they had. When did the 490 years end? And it was generally agreed. And it was found also in the margins of all the Bibles. Christ died 490 years after the spring of 457 BC, which is the spring of AD 33. You take 490 minus 457, and you get 33. This is presently also the date that is being cherished by most Christians. It originated in the Catholic Church, but it is really universally accepted. And not the year 31, as Adventists have argued since 1844. Now, what is the common dating of the 490 years? The scholar that was most respected for this was James Ferguson in the 18th century. And uh, he then calculated from 457, the spring, the seventh year of Artaxerxes, and ended up then at 1833, the spring, the death of Christ. And that is common knowledge outside of Adventism. So what is now the evidence of 33? How solid is it that all the Christians follow this except Seventh-day Adventists? Because we are a minority, an extremely little minority. And the explanation for the year 31 is, you can find anything except some of our things and in my book. So what do you find? The general accepted date based on the, was on, based on the scientific method. That originated with Roger Bacon in the 13th century. It was a very clever dating, and uh, it was confirmed by the famous Scottish astronomer James Ferguson. <coughs> what was now the scientific method? The astronomical calculations were used to find the year when Christ died. Because the Catholics are very, very precise in finding the dates related to sacred events. And so here is Roger Day Bacon, who came to that conclusion. How is the beginning of the Jewish year calculated? How? The first day of the new moon nearest the spring equinox. Anybody knows what the spring equinox is? What is the spring equinox? What is the date? March 21. When the sun goes from the southern hemisphere to the new hemisphere, northern hemisphere, 
and when it is perpendicular on the equator. And so when you find that date, you take the first day of the moon, new moon closest to that. And so, if you have that, when is the date of Passover? Nisan or Abib? What is the 14th day? The 14th day of the first month of the Jewish year, and you find this in Leviticus 23, that is then the day of the the day of Passover. And so how do you now find Christ's death? What is the correct year of the crucifixion? If you find when the 14th day of the first Jewish moon falls on a Friday. Because when was Christ died? When did he die? Good Friday. Yeah? Of course, it wasn't a good Friday at that time. It was a day of preparation. But on Good Friday. So that is what he's calculating. Calculating backward. And the period that he determined was close. You know, actually he found solid evidence that it was in the year 33 AD. That was done that year. And it fits exactly... The 70 weeks period. So, how did Miller then calculate the 2300 years? Because he accepted the present, current scientific understanding. Here is the 2300 years calculation method. The first one is based on the degree of Artaxerxes. You start with 457 the spring. And then what you do is, seventh year of Artaxerxes, and then you take 2300 minus 457. 1843. Is it all clear? Then 2300 years later, you come to the spring of 1843. 43. Is it clear? Very simple. Not complicated. So the second method is based on Christ's death. You remember Christ's death was one? 490 years. It was in the year 33 AD in the spring. Very simple. Christ died in the spring. Isn't this Passover? Christ died Passover was in the spring. So you see how beautifully it fits. The spring of the issue of the degree coming down to the spring of, 80, uh, of 33 AD. And then you had, had to add, you take 2300 minus 490, and then you get 1810. 1810, you add to 33, and you come again to the spring of 1833. So the evidence seems quite compulsive. And yet today we know that 1843 was not the correct year. But at his time, when he spoke, it was there. And none of the opponents was able to say, hey, William Miller, 
you have a problem here in your calculation. None of them. So what did he do then? The scholars at the time said, ah, you know, it's Antiochus Epiphanes. You're wrong. And they moved to preterism. You're wrong, William Miller. The little horn is not Rome, pagan and papal. Antiochus Epiphanes. And there, uh, look at the book of Maccabees, and there you find all the evidence. But 95% here in this country didn't accept this. They were all historicists. Today, how many historicists are left over? Very, very few. And so here then the message was, go. <coughs> Tell it to the world. And William Miller proclaimed it. And here you have the, the charge. 1843 charge. And they would invite you before you leave this auditorium to look at the chart and see if you can figure out all those numbers. Because this, not too many of us can give an explanation of all those numbers. But the pioneers could. In fact, Ellen White says, a child can tell you the story. A child? The story of, of the 2300 days? Isn't it only for the pastors and ministers? No, friends, it is a simple story, if you know it. And so here the famous 1843 chart, <coughs> developed by Charles Fitch and Apollos Hale. This was the, the visuals that they used. And then, of course, uh, the millinery, uh, Millerite missionary papers were published on all the important issues. And so the specific dating, we come now closer and closer and closer to the year 1843. <clears throat> and people want to know now, hey, Miller, you have to declare yourself, when is that special year? When within that year are the possibilities? And so here then, William Miller says, it is the Jewish year. The Jewish year. The focus now is on the end type of the Lord's festivals in Leviticus 23. So what you do is, you find that a number of those feasts were fulfilled exactly to the date. What about the Passover? Didn't Christ die exactly on that day? Didn't he? Yeah. So, what about the wave sheaf? Wasn't it exactly at the time? And what about the Pentecost? The outpouring that was the anniversary of, or that was the time of the Feast of Weeks. The grain harvest. The barley was on the Feast of Weeks, uh, the, the wave sheaf, but the larger grain harvest was at Pentecost. And so the reason is, if the spring festivals had the exact fulfillment as to the time and date at the first advent, what about the feast in the fall? Feast of trumpet, warning to prepare for the Day of Atonement. What about the Day of Atonement? That was, it didn't have the antitype in the first advent, did it? No. 
That is, the symbolism is at the end of time, the second advent. And then what about the Feast of Tabernacle? The Feast of the Ingathering. Christ and his angels come and gather us all together in. Does it sound logical? Very logical. And so, when 1843, the year was there, they pressed William Miller again, give us a date. William Miller said no. But other Millerite leaders gave dates. And they're all associated with the year 33. The anniversary of the types now during this year. And so the Jewish year, 1843, starts from the spring of 1842 to the spring of, 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 for the spring of 1843 to the spring of 1844. That was then the range. But specifically, the times of the feast in the spring were looked at. The fulfillment of the end types of the Lord's spring feasts, Passover. And so when Passover then came in 1843, it was looked upon with great intensity. But when nothing happened, the next feast, the wave sheaf, when that didn't happen, the wave sheaf, sign of the resurrection. Then the next one, the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. And each one of those dates passed on and Christ did not come. So, now we go to the... Well, during the speculation then of the spring, William Miller said, no, don't do this. Those spring festivals have no significance. If there's any date, any feast that would coincide with Christ's coming is in the fall, the Day of Atonement. When was that? The dates there, 1810 years after 1833. So now you get the focus of the pioneers on the autumn of 1843. Where? September. The fulfillment of the end types of the spring festivals. And of course, at that time, William Miller consulted the rabbinical calendar. The Day of Atonement, the judgment that will come in September or maybe in October. The Feast of Tabernacles, the harvest. So there was a great interest in the seventh month. And it was called William Miller's seventh month predictions. But again, that passed. Nothing happened. And so what do you get then? Then you go to the year 1844, and you get then the spring there. That is the last moment that Jesus could come during 1843. What is it? The first disappointment. The first disappointment took place. And then, what did he have to do? It was a severe, not a severe disappointment because there was a number of possibilities there. But they called upon the Lord and they searched and they researched. Of course, many people gave up. 
this calculation altogether, but there were a group of people that continued to plead with the Lord. And the Lord gave them further light. The disappointment in the spring of 1844, what were now the major causes? First of all, there is a problem in the dating of the end of the 2300 years. There's a problem in chronology. So they need to restudy chronology. Central was the popular view that Christ was crucified in the spring of 1833. And so we had to investigate, is this biblical or not? Secondly, the incorrect view of the meaning of the cleansing of the sanctuary. What is that? The widespread understanding that the earth was the sanctuary. We couldn't, couldn't maintain this. And secondly, the cleansing of the sanctuary was the cleansing of the earth by fire. So those two errors were the cause of the first disappointment. Now, restudying a significance of the 1843-1844 time settings. So the Lord showed us that following the scientific method of dating Christ's method or Christ's death is incorrect. And the events also is incorrect. So we had to find a new solution. I said, you know, it is terrible that they've... No, it's very, very good because there are a number of pathways that you can use in biblical interpretation. And one series of interpretations we had to debunk because they were not correct. So the time settings were very, very good to show that if you take those roads, it is nowhere. Nowhere. So they could back to the drawing board. Here are the new insights of the study of prophetic time. First, the adoption of the correct chronology of history. And none of our, none of our opponents even pointed this out. They did not. They could not. So we have to find it ourselves what was the solution of the incorrect chronology. Secondly, the rejection of the year AD 33 for Christ's death. The rest of the world still believes in this. We not. Why? Because of the disappointment. The acceptance of the year AD 33 as the correct year for the crucifixion. And four, the perspectives of Christ's sanctuary ministry. New perspective that opened up a whole different view. And here you see Josiah Litch. Comment on Daniel, Daniel 9, 24, the anointing of the most holy. Before that, many people said the most holy is Jesus Christ. And it was his baptism. Josiah Litz says, no. The anointing of the most holy place is the most holy there is an, the antitype of what happened in Moses' time. Christ's ascension marks his fulfillment of the antitype of the anointing of the earthly sanctuary. It marks the anointing of the heavenly sanctuary. It inaugurates his ministry.
So as Moses anointed the heavenly sanctuary to begin the earthly, no, the earthly sanctuary, so Christ, before starting his ministry, had to anoint the heavenly sanctuary before starting it. You see? So during this time then, the attention was shifted from earth to the heavenly sanctuary. Isn't it interesting how God works? And then William Miller on Leviticus 23 on the Day of Atonement. <clears throat> As the antitypes of the Lord's spring feast were fulfilled at his first advent, so the autumn feasts are to be fulfilled in connection with the second advent. So William Miller then draws attention, our attention to the Day of Atonement. There was a shift together with the inauguration of the sanctuary. Correct chronology of history. Principles of chronology about B.C. and A.D. dates. How many years are there from 2 B.C. to 4 A.D.? How many? Five? Okay. Anybody else? Six? Three? Four? Seven? Anyway, here you see it. Timeline of history. So, between 2 B.C. and 4 A.D., how many? From 2 B.C. to A.D., 4 A.D., there are six, not six years, but five full years. Full years because what? What happened? Notice there is no zero year. And we had to find it ourselves because of the disappointment to discover this. So how many years are there between? Okay, okay, I did say incorrect. Between 457 BC and uh, 1843. How many years? There are not 2,300 years, but 2,299 full years. Which brings, you have to add one extra year to have a full 2,300 years. See, so you have to have one year beyond 1843. And then you come to 1844. And so that was discovered during that year. Now, that has significant implications about prophecy. Shift in the end of the prophetic periods. Before the full year concept, this was it. 453, 1833, 1843. But after the adoption of the full year concept, here you are. 457, 80. 34, and then 1844. So what happens now to the crucifixion? The crucifixion cannot be dated anymore in 34 AD. Because, according to the scientists, it had to be 33. So this whole structure now is on shaky ground. What are we now going to do? The problem is now, 
how valid is the AD 33 date? A reinvestigation. What is the basis of the calculation of AD 33? The Jews in Christ's time used the current Jewish calendar, which was the rabbinical calendar. Is this calendar based on the Bible? No, it is based on astronomical observations. It calculates the new year by the new moon nearest the vernal equinox. Now, why does it not use the biblical reckoning? Why does the rabbis not do this? Simply, it was designed by the rabbis so Jews throughout the world could celebrate the religious feast at the same day. So you could calculate it if you live in Rome, in Babylon, because if you use the biblical reckoning of observation of the barley harvest, well then, ah, the priest goes out, sees the ripening of the harvest, goes to the temple and makes the preparation. So what do they do? They email immediately to Rome <laughs> and to Babylon. No, it takes weeks. And so the Jews in Babylon and in Rome will not have the opportunity to have the Passover at the same time as everybody else. You see how simple it is? That is why they used this, this calculation. And so the biblical new year is determined by agricultural conditions in Palestine. It is not suitable as a means of calculating feast days for Jews worldwide. So that is why the rabbis developed this other calendar. However, there was still the biblical reckoning because the temple was still standing. You still needed to have a wave sheaf after Passover. So, calendars and Christ's death. Where was there a calendar based on biblical principles at that time? If so, is this calendar based on the Bible? Yes, the Jewish Kairate calendar. What was the biblical basis of this calendar? Of course, they were not called Kairite calendar in the time of Christ. The Kairites are a Jewish sect later on. And later on, they decided not to follow the rabbis, but go back to the Bible. So it is based on agricultural observations. The year began with a new moon nearest the harvest, earliest harvest. And that is the barley harvest in Judea for Passover. For Passover could only be celebrated when there was a harvest. If you could not have the wave sheaf one month later, remember? And so that is very important. <clears throat> if the priest observed that there was no harvest possible in the first month, the year would begin one month later. So that you had a harvest. That's how they operated. 
So it was determined by observation. Can it determine Passover Friday with exactness? No. In fact, if it was cloudy, they took it one day later. So precise it was there. No, there are no agricultural records from the time. So if we had the agricultural records in the Jerusalem temple today, we knew exactly what it was. But what happened in 70 AD? Completely destroyed. There was nothing anymore left. So whether you use the rabbinical calendar, the scientific approach, or the Kairite calendar in 1844, it is impossible to determine the year of Christ's death by calendars. No use. And so no calendar can determine Passover Friday 1,800 years ago with absolute certainty. There's both speculation. So how do we get now to the proper crucifixion date, AD 31? Luke 23:44. it was about the sixth hour and there was a darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. So there is another thing. One goes through the calendars to find Christ's death. This is through the evidence of the dark day. Did Luke observe a supernatural darkness? Did he? Yes. The darkness was all over the earth. Now maybe an eclipse. Was an eclipse all over the earth? No. What was the position of the moon at that time? It was, remember, the 14th day of the new moon? It was full moon. The Jews began the year with the new moon, and the 14th day Passover was on the middle of the first month, Leviticus 23, verse 5, which was full moon. And there was no eclipse when there's a full moon. These are of ages, pages 753 and 754. 754. Were there now eyewitnesses of this unique darkness? Yes, Dionysius the Areopagite and Apophelus the Sophist. You know who Dionysius the Areopagite is? That was a convert of Paul when he had this evangelistic meeting in Athens, remember? His result was very meager. But Dionysius was the man who testified about the dark day. And so the place was Heliopolis, Egypt. <coughs> Here are the pagan witnesses, because at that time Dionysius was a pagan. The description of the darkness by two philosophers. They saw, quote, darkness commence at the eastern limb of the sun and proceed to the western till the whole was eclipsed and then regrade backward from the western to the eastern till the light was restored. Now, is that an eclipse that you go from the east 
to the west and then you return? No, an eclipse starts in the east and then goes to the west. You see, a total unique event. And what is the response of those pagan witnesses? Apollophanes says, these, O Dionysius, are the vicissitudes of divine events. Dionysius perceives either the deity suffers or he sympathizes with the sufferer. Isn't it marvelous? And he became a Christian. The source is Dionysius, Paul's convert in Acts 17, verse 34, in a letter to Polycarp, as cited in William Hale's New Analysis of Chronology, Volumes 3 in 1830. Now keep in mind, before 1830, the understanding was not 31 AD. It was 33 AD. And just before William Miller started to preach, the Lord moved upon the heart of the chronologers, William Hayes, Hales, put his book together so that when the disappointment came, we had the solution. What do you say? Isn't it amazing how prophecy works? And so then further research was done. And then historical evidence for the crucifixion in AD 31. <clears throat> the Council of Caesarea, AD 196-198. The Alexandria Chronicle. Maximus Monachus. Nesiphorus Constantinus. Cedrinus, Eusebius, History of the Christian Church, Epiphanius, and Aurelius Cassiodorus, Senator of the Roman Council about AD 540. All of those testify of the year 31 AD. Except Eusebius in the History of the Christian Church. He doesn't start with the supernatural darkness. He starts with Luke chapter 3 the baptism of Jesus, and then recognizes the year of Christ's crucifixion in 31 AD. So beautiful here, what an evidence we have, but not calendars. So, but there's plenty of evidence for the year 31 AD. But yet, hardly anybody today follows this. But we have to follow this, and why? Because that's significant implications for our prophetic calculations. <clears throat> the significance of the new dating of the death of Christ, the impact of the cross on the 70 weeks. Now Christ's crucifixion falls in the middle of the 70 weeks. Before that not, it was at the end. Here it is, the new insight, where you see then the 70 weeks diagram and Christ dies then in AD 31 in the spring, exactly in the middle of the week, according to Daniel 9.27. The sacrifice and oblation ceased when Christ died. And now as a result, that, when that is the spring, what is then in 457? It turns to the autumn. And then... The end of the 69th week, or 483 years, is AD 27. 
the autumn, which is exactly the baptism of Jesus. And AD 34 is the end of the 70 weeks. The autumn, the stoning of Stephen. And if you take the chronology of Paul, you come then basically to AD 37, 34. And what is then the significance of AD 31 for Daniel 9? The new insights into the 70-year prophecy. The center of time prophecy is now the crucifixion of Christ. Not Artaxerxes, no. The crucifixion of Christ, the cross of Christ, becomes now the center of time prophecy. Isn't it amazing? The crucifixion of Christ moved to the middle of the 70th week in the spring of AD 34. The impact on the 70 weeks, the end of the 490 years became the autumn of AD 34. And the start of the 490 years became the autumn of 457 BC when the decree was promulgated and executed by Ezra, and Dr. Davidson has clearly printed out the season of the Day of Atonement. What is now the impact on the 2300 days? And here comes the evangelist S.S. Snow. New light on the doctrine of Christ. Now, a few people say that this has anything to do with the doctrine of Christ because we think about his ministry. But no, everything about Christ is important. Even the date of his crucifixion. You see? Extremely important. Here we see now the 2300 days, and from the fall of 457 BC, we go 2300 years further, and we come to the autumn of 1844. The promulgating and execution of the decree comes to the cleansing of the sanctuary of Daniel 8.14 on the 10th day of the seventh month when the antitype of the Day of Atonement would be fulfilled. See how solid? And that is not developed by accommodations. Not by accommodations. No, by our pioneers who had a tremendous insight of the literature at the time and the Bible. Time, October 22, 1844, Kyrie Reckoning. Any precise dates they got from travelers during that year who traveled from Israel to America and reported that the year had started a month later. Very interesting. And so the significance of AD 31 for Daniel 8, new insight. The cleansing of the sanctuary at the end of the 2300 days moved to the autumn of 1844, the season of the Day of Atonement. The effect of this shift, the cleansing of the sanctuary became associated with the antitype of the Day of Atonement on the 10th day of the seventh month of the 10th month of the Jewish year. Result, the prophetic foundation of the SDA church came into place. 
And that is before the Adventist Church started. This is the beautiful legacy of the Millerite movement. What do you say? And so here, as a result, the movement was called the Seventh Month Movement. The effect of Snow's message on Adventists. Quote, of all the great religious movements since the days of the apostles, none have been more free from human imperfection than was that of the autumn of 1844. Great controversy, page 401. So the great, greatest event between the crucifixion and resurrection and today is 1844. The beginning of the final ministry of Jesus Christ. And so, new insights of the doctrine of Christ. What is the new light that we have received? If no non-Adventist books, you find this declared. But this is what we have to keep in mind, of the doctrine of Christ. A further unsealing of Daniel during 1843 and 1844, the Millerite experience led to further light into the fullness of Christ that was necessary in preparation for the Second Advent. The cross now became central in time prophecy. And before that, we didn't even pay attention to it. And today, we don't even pay attention to it. No, friends, the cross of Christ is central. It led to a fuller understanding of Daniel 9. Christ's crucifixion is in the spring of AD 31. Christ's crucifixion is in the middle of the 70th week. The 49 years ended in the autumn of AD 34. And a new understanding of Daniel 8 the 2300 years now ended in the autumn of AD 1844. The result, we have now the prophetic foundations of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Beautiful. New insight. The impact of the new light on Christ's ministry is fulfillment of the antitypes of the Old Testament sanctuary services and feasts. A clear understanding of Daniel 9, the type. The earthly sanctuary was anointed by Moses at the beginning of its services. Christ's crucifixion is in the middle of the 70th week. The antitype is now the heavenly sanctuary the Kodesh Kodeshim, Daniel 9.24, was anointed by Christ at the beginning of his ministry after his ascension. This leads to a new understanding of the sanctuary in Daniel 8. So what the pioneers discovered before the disappointment already about the heavenly sanctuary made it easy for us to migrate to the heavenly sanctuary. You see it? The new understanding of Daniel 8, the type. The day of atonement was a time of judgment and cleansing of the sanctuary on the 10th day of the seventh month. 
The antitype, the antitypical day of atonement was related to the final judgment and cleansing at the end of the 2300 years. On the 10th day of the seventh month, October 22, 1844. And it's interesting to observe, and that is a whole other lecture, but uh, that just before the disappointment in 1844, I found an article that was discussing, hey, you know, the idea was that Christ went into the most holy place at the ascension. Now he would come out of the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary in 1844. But they said there were some that said maybe he enters into the most holy place in 1844. And that idea took root and was adapted by the Adventist Church. Instead of coming out, he went into the most holy. And some believed it already. And so here, the Millerite legacy of truth, a rediscovery of the correct view of Daniel 9, the correct chronology and meaning of the 70 weeks, because you must believe that in Christ's time, the apostles had a clear understanding of Daniel 9. Even if we don't find this in the literature, the first time that the correct view again appears in the literature of all the writers throughout the centuries is the Millerite literature of Daniel 9, as I have presented it. It's the restoration of the true view. Secondly, the unsealing of Daniel 8, the correct chronology of the 2300 days. That's it. So what we got is the foundation of our whole prophetic understanding in chronology. It was all there. And so, friends, remember the cross of Christ is at the foundation of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Never forget this. When I wrote this book, I mentioned this, but it never dawned on me as strongly as when I was preparing for my classes. And the cross of Christ became more and more significant. And we hardly dare to mention Miller and the disappointment because it is so embarrassing for us. Friends, we may as well proclaim the tremendous insight that the rest of the Christian world doesn't know. But seven-day Adventists know if they study it. And friends, may God help us to share this. We are cross-centered even in the great disappointment. And so, the foundation of the seven-day Adventist faith. The task of the minister, and you are all ministers, Ministers should present the sure word of prophecy as the foundation of the faith of Seventh-day Adventists. comes from Evangelism, page 196. And may God help us that we catch the glimpse here and lift up the cross of Christ. Are you willing to do this? May I see your hands? Praise the Lord. May God bless this congregation. And as a result, 
may we see the fire of evangelism in Chattanooga and surrounding areas. And some God will take from here, some of the young people, and bring them to Russia, to the Soviet republics, to China, or New Guinea. Who knows? Jesus waits for available people. He says, Lord, here I am. Take me. And if you say that, your life will never be the same. You believe that? May God bless you. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.